Good morning, church. My name is Grace Walthall, and I'm a sophomore in high school. And I've been at this church since as long as I can remember. (laughs) This morning, we celebrate Palm Sunday through studying the sovereignty of Jesus. Today's scripture passage reveals that Jesus knows what is coming, and Jesus is sovereign over specifics of all life because Jesus is the promised king. This is good news for people like you and me who want to know what is coming and control specifics of life and relationships. Please join me in reading Luke 19, 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivent, he, spent two of, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and were found, it is just as he had told him. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God. All right, I have a microphone and an iPad up here. It's like a bonus. Whose is this? Grace, did you leave that? Or Becky, you got this? Yeah. Uh, Things are going to get crazy up here. And if the sermon goes anything like some of the palm waving that I saw out there, we had some enthusiasm. I'll affirm that. And a couple of you might need a first aid booth back there. It's like we had a few eyes put out from the excitement. It's good. It's good. Um, It is a joy to gather with you in worship. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bible. If you don't have one open, uh, you can open it on your phone. We're going to look at this passage today. It's a familiar one. Uh, We celebrate people who are joining us that are exploring the Christian faith. So waving palm branches in church may be a foreign thing for you. Uh, But every year, we joyfully uh, remember when Jesus, as king, rode into Jerusalem, this during the last week of his life. Uh, entered into Jerusalem uh, with the excitement of the crowds, the joy of mainly people from Bethany, as we see this morning, uh, who were hailing him as king, waving palm branches, putting their cloaks down for Jesus on this colt riding in. Uh, We continue to celebrate what we call Holy Week. If you want to join us on Thursday night in this room, we have 
uh, what's called Monday Thursday, and it's not spelled Monday Thursday. Uh, it's spelled Monday Thursday, and we uh, remember and commemorate the Last Supper that the Lord had with His disciples. Uh, we'll do that in here on Friday. Uh, we have what we call a Good Friday service, and that's at noon, uh, and we leave that service uh, in somber uh, silence, remembering the suffering and death of King Jesus. And then we gather again on Sunday morning, and, and it's a little bit different if you're new with us. Uh, our, our modern worship service is actually a sunrise service, uh, and that starts, what time does that start? 6.45 in the a.m. Uh, it is followed by breakfast that's free of charge, and there's only one word for that. What's that word? Thank you. I'll be honest with you. I was in the traditional service last week, and I said that, and like two people responded, and I was like, can the Holy Spirit even move in here? Come on. <laughs> Just kidding. Of course it can. So we have breakfast together, and then we've got a, a series of services on Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of our King. So that's a little bit of context for the Passover, uh, for the palm branches that you experience. Uh, just by way of reminder, uh, we have been looking at the Gospel of Luke. And since Luke chapter 9, uh, we have read about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has decided that he was going to obey the Father's will for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Uh, the last week of Jesus' life, it's about 20% of the Gospel of Luke, so it's a pretty big priority. But all the way back to Luke chapter 9 is him setting his face towards Jerusalem. That is over half of the gospel. And so this focus for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, not to be hailed uh, as king, but to suffer and die has been something that Luke has wanted to keep before us. And Jesus, at several times through this gospel, he's explained to his disciples why he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer He's going to be betrayed. He's going to die at the hands of the leaders. And time and time again, his disciples had had difficulty believing it and even comprehending it. You'll remember one famous uh, narrative where Jesus is talking about with Peter, and Peter says, you will never die. We're going to stay with you. You're not going to suffer. And you'll remember what Jesus says to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You remember this? Because Peter had set his mind on things of this world, said Jesus. So all this journey going to Jerusalem, the disciples had had difficulty digesting the teaching of Jesus of why he was going there. They had believed Jesus uh, to be a Messiah uh, that would be the son of man that liberated all of Israel, a political Messiah. They would get rid of the Roman Empire. And what I've found is that many Christians today, we actually suffer with some of the same difficulty of understanding the nature of Jesus' humanity, his state of humility as God, that he chose to suffer. In our, some of us may struggle with like a political understanding of our faith, but mostly people that I walk with can identify with me. We have such a, a love for ourselves that's manifest in wanting to control things, that's manifest in comfort, and manifest in convenience. And so we have a difficult time digesting the state of humility of Christ, the suffering that comes 
with Christ's first coming. So today we're going to push into that a little bit. We're going to see how the gospel liberates us and frees us uh, from this self-love that's manifest in those ways and frees us for a full love of God uh, that really frees us and gives us everything we're looking for. So let me ask you this before we get started. Uh, Does anybody in here know a control freak, somebody that just likes to control everything? Yeah? All right. Okay, I, I saw like a half of y'all had hands, some of y'all were nodding, and a few of y'all turned red like, oh great, this one's coming right at me. <laughs> yeah, it's coming right at me. Uh, just look at somebody next to you and say, God's got a word for you. Can you do that? Yeah, God's got a word for you today. I think y'all are saying more than that at this point. <laughs> okay, all right. So let's do this. Let's, let's go to the Lord of the word before we go to the word of the Lord of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, you know the distracted nature of my heart. You know the sin struggles of the one who shares. We come to your word in worship, celebrating this week, remembering your faithfulness, and desperately needing your Holy Spirit. Please meet us. Don't just inspire us, but transform us. Give us a heart to receive, ears to hear, eyes to see what you've done and what you want to say to us. Lord, we want to know you more so that we can love you more. And we pray for your mercy to that end. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. So listen, uh, we're going to unpack this passage. And Luke uh, highlights this episode of Jesus entering Jerusalem with three key scenes. And we're going to have three bullet points, okay? So here's the, I'm going to just list you, here's where we're going. Are you ready? Just so you can buckle up and know what's coming, no surprises, all right? First thing is that Jesus knows what is coming, and you don't. Second, Jesus is sovereign over the specifics, and you're not. And the third one is that Jesus is the promised king, and you are his subject, Not the subject like the noun that everything revolves around, but like the subject of the king who is Jesus. So the first things first, Jesus knows what is coming, and you do not. Uh, Look at verse, uh, this is the opening verse of our section, verse 18, uh, when Jesus enters, um, let's see, excuse me, uh, where are... 28, yes, I'm sorry. Numbers are not my specialty. I get names and numbers messed up a lot. He said these things. He went ahead going to Jerusalem. This puts us in the context of of Luke's uh, trajectory of Jesus going to Jerusalem all the way back to chapter 9 where he set his face. And it says here that, verse 30, he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany. Uh, That is the mount called Olivet. So Bethany, you'll remember, is where Jesus, his friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. Do you remember this? Lazarus was the one who was raised to life uh, after he had died. He had been in the grave for four days. And he, Jesus was quite a celebrity in Bethany. People loved him. People knew him. And, and there's this real sense that as Jesus is going into Jerusalem, he's uh, stirring up his followers. And so that's a good thing uh, as he goes in. That's where a lot of the celebration comes from. But you see, Jesus knows exactly what is coming. Look at, look at verse 30. Jesus said to two of his disciples, he said, go into the village in front of you where you're entering, and you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. And then he says, verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying this? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. 
Just as the Lord had predicted his suffering multiple times in this gospel, so too he is predicting exactly what's going to happen. Jesus knows what is coming. Just as Jesus is positive that he's the fulfillment of the prophecy, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the one who would be beat and mocked and humiliated beyond human recognition, he knew that was he. So too, he knew the specifics that was coming. Now, Jesus tells his disciples to go. Imagine the awkwardness. Go into the village and you're going to see someone else's animal and just go and untie it. Uh, like, I've followed you a lot, but that's just awkward. Could you imagine obeying that? All right. And, it, and there's two of them, so they're talking as they go. I mean, it's like, yeah, Jesus told us to go in. I guess we're going to see someone else's donkey and just take it. I mean, could you imagine if Jesus said to you, hey, you're going to go down over to uh, Crockett Avenue and you're going to see a Maserati parked. Just get on inside of it. And if anybody asks you why you need it, just tell them the master has use of it. You'd be like, uh, uh, okay. So they go over and they walk and they see the colt exactly how Jesus said. And then they start untying it. And someone, of course, is like, hey, what are you doing? That's not your colt. And now this is, they're sitting there, they're busted. They're only doing this because Jesus told them to. They don't have the bracelets of WWJD. Like, hey, what would Jesus do, man? He would take your donkey. They don't have that. And so they just have to look at him and say what Jesus said. The master has need of it. Okay, no problem. You can take it. Oh, imagine the relief that they would have had. Jesus knows exactly what is coming. He can see what the disciples cannot see. He can tell the disciples to say what they do not know they need to say. And he does it. This highlights the, the sovereignty that Jesus has over everything. And, and you and I, we, we long to know what is coming, don't we? If we could Google it and find out what's coming, we probably would. But can we just celebrate the reality that Jesus isn't surprised by what has come. Jesus isn't surprised by the war that's happening in Ukraine. Jesus isn't surprised by the evil in this world that is manifest in mass shootings. Jesus isn't surprised at the personal struggles that people have Jesus isn't surprised by the rising tide of anxiety in our world right now. Jesus is not surprised by the alarming, alarming data that's coming out about personal injury that's happening to the youth in our country. Jesus isn't surprised by the loss of life. He's not surprised. Jesus knows what is coming. And we get super anxious by what we don't know. And certain things fill it, right? We, we have conspiracy theories. We have all kinds of uh, annual predictions that we, we, we want to see what's going to come. And we don't know. I mean, how many articles did you see this week about the potential harm of AI taking over the world? 
It's remarkable. And I had multiple people email me things saying, do you know what AI can do for facial recognition technology? Do you know what AI can do with voice recognition technology? Do you know? Are you scared? As a pastor, can I say this? That Jesus has a high priority for facial recognition technology. (laughs) He wants you to recognize his face. Jesus has a high recognition for voice, a high respect for voice recognition technology. He wants you to recognize his voice. He's the good shepherd. And he promises to never leave us or forsake us. He says his sheep will hear his voice and follow him. And he knows what's coming. And he promises to be with us in the valley of the shadow of death. And we don't need to fear evil. And that when he says his rod and his staff will comfort us, that's his total authority. So friends, we don't know what's coming, but Jesus will not be surprised when it comes. So he sends his disciples to, to get this colt on which he's going to ride into Jerusalem. Uh, and you can see the next point, that Jesus is sovereign over the specifics. He's, he's not only not surprised, but he's sovereign over the specifics. And I'm gonna, we're going to use one word that's repeated five times to unpack this. But uh, can, can we just push in a little bit um, this word sovereignty? It, it literally means that Jesus is in control of everything. Ephesians 1.11 puts it this way. Uh, God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. There's nothing that happens by accident. And there's nothing that doesn't fall in the category of, of what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50.29. Uh, 50.52? 50.20. Thank you. Mike, Mike, Mike just, uh, we just taught a co-Sunday school class together. Uh, he dominated and he taught on the sovereignty of God. And so my, my numbers again were messed up. 50.20? Genesis 50.20. What does it say about God? What did Joseph say to his brothers there, Michael? As, you, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. As... As for you, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Like sovereignty means there's total control that Jesus has. And if you're like me, you struggle with trying to control things. And we often miss celebrating the sovereignty of God. And I'm just going to put this frankly because of our self-love. And it manifests itself in controlling in seeking comfort and convenience. I had a conversation with somebody this week and we were talking about why peace is so hard for us to grasp, to feel. Why is it that peace seems so elusive? I mean, it's a fruit of the spirit and if the spirit's inside of me, shouldn't that fruit come out? Shouldn't I be able to eat peace like all the time? Well, the reality is that my self-love for control, my self-love that's manifest in my own comfort, I I miss the peace that God wants to give me because I don't trust his sovereignty. This is what uh, St. Augustine says about our loves. He says that you and I are directed by our loves and our life actually moves towards what we love. The image he uses is like a rock in water. 
So if you put rock in a water, it just moves down toward the ground and it settles at the bottom. Gravity pulls it. So too, with things that we love, we move towards those things. So if we have uh, an ordinate love of self, like I do, that's manifest in a love of control, then we're going to move towards control. Here's the thing about loving control. If you love control, you don't actually get the thing that you love. To move towards control and to try to control something is actually to lose the thing you're seeking to obtain. I've sat with a lot of marriages, (laughs) a lot. I've never had someone come into my office and say, hey, look, we just wanted to make an appointment with you and tell you how great our marriage is. You know why? He is controlling everything about me. It's awesome. Like, he just totally dominates everything he says we do, everything he he wants done happens. I mean, like, his level of control, it's oppressive for me, and I love it. Yeah. Never heard it. You know what I have heard a lot? Man, they will not quit trying to control me. Their effort to change me is smothering me. Their effort to make things happen according to their will is actually making my will diminish in even wanting to participate in this relationship. That is normal. The thing we try to control is the thing we end up losing control of. And we definitely don't get to feast on the fruit of peace. What about comfort? What if I love myself enough and I I love comfort? I mean, surely that's something that gives me peace. Just let me ask you this. How many people who are uber rich have said, hey, you know what, that's enough. We have enough, we don't need anything else. That's good, we're good. No, everyone is looking for a more comfortable way to sleep, a more comfortable way to ride, a more comfortable way to live. It is this standard that keeps rising. Why? Because when we seek self-love through comfort, we don't actually have a sustaining comfort. We don't. We gotta have something else. Well, what about convenience, Mitchell? Surely convenience is a love that I can have, and if I move towards that convenience, then I'll have this peace and security and satisfaction. How's your iPhone working for you? Like, how much has the ultimate thing of convenience given you peace? Actually, the more convenient things come, the more our entitlement is triggered, and the the more anxious we feel. In fact, a lot of the, the data that's coming out about the rise of anxiety and the rise of depression has direct correlation with the level of convenience that you find or think you find on your phone. The more you love it, the more you move towards it, the less you actually experience it. So the way to get secure in someone else's control and the way to be satisfied in your comfort and your convenience is not to love those things or to love yourself where you move towards those things, but it's to surrender to your savior, 
knowing that he is sovereign over specifics. There are things you didn't cause. There are things you cannot cure. There are things you cannot control. And when you want to experience the peace of security, then you must surrender to our sovereign Savior, period. Mitchell, how do we see that Jesus is sovereign over specifics? Let's follow the word untied. Look at this verse, verse 30. This word's repeated five times. Jesus says, go into the village in front of you where you're entering, you'll find a colt tied there. And no one's ever sat on it, so untie it and bring it here. Verse 32, those were sent away. They found it just as he has told them. All right, Jesus is sovereign. Verse 33, as they were untying the colt, the owner said, why are you untying the colt? The Lord has need of it. Jesus is in total control of the specifics. And as the disciples went and untied the colt, so too, when you can finally surrender to the sovereignty of Jesus, your spirit will be untied and free. Because you will acknowledge that Jesus is king and you are not. Please note this. Jesus demonstrates his sovereignty through his word. He declared it. And if you want to live securely in his sovereignty, then you too will trust his word. You too will see his word as a light unto your feet and a lamp unto your path. You too will see this word more valuable than gold, sweeter than honey. And your affections will align with the word in the same language that all through scripture, especially the Psalms, celebrates God's word. Secondly, notice that the disciples obeyed. It's super awkward. Um, I'm going to go untie a colt that's not mine. I'm going to tell a stranger that Jesus has needs of it, and we hope it works out. I'm in the most difficult situation of my life. I'm going to trust what Jesus says is true, that he's going to redeem all that he allows. I don't know how these numbers are going to match up, but I'm going to trust God's design for my resources. I don't know if this relationship's going to work out, but I'm going to trust that fruitfulness comes when we share truth and love, and I'm not going to live in fear and back away from the truth. I'm going to surrender. In my roles of leadership and service, whether that's in your home or your workplace or your school, we're going to trust that the way up is actually down, that the greatest is the least, that the most full is the one that gives the most away, the strongest is the servant of all, that the ways of the kingdom. We're going to hear, we're going to obey, and we're going to trust that Jesus is sovereign over specifics. And then it may be the case. Are you ready? It may be the case that we will have to experience the persecution and the death that comes with following Jesus and to trust that life on the other side is greater. We may have to hold on to that promise. So this is what we see in these two first points. The third point is this. Jesus is the promised king and you are his subject. He knows what's coming, you don't. He's sovereign over specifics, you are not. But he is a sovereign king and you are his subject. Our savior leads us step by step 
Our true security is found in surrendering to his sovereignty, and we can do that because Jesus is revealed as king. The ancient prophecy from Zechariah the prophet, uh, the minor prophet, and he wasn't called the minor prophet because he couldn't buy alcohol, okay? He was called the minor prophet uh, because he wrote a smaller prophecy, all right? Let's just get that out of the way. And in what we call chapter 9, verse 9, he prophesied that the king would come, the Messiah would come, riding on a colt. In the same way, uh, they anticipated the king of Israel to come into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus is acknowledged, he's celebrated as king. That is the importance of Palm Sunday. But we have to ask this question. How could a king like Jesus have a subject like me? How could he, the king of all kings, the one who fulfills the ancient promise and the hope for a, a, a ruler that would bring justice and righteousness. How could he have someone like me that loves control, that loves convenience, that loves comfort, let me just say it this way, that loves myself more than him? How can I be a subject? Do I just need to try harder, work harder, to be more faithful? Then will he be my king? No. You gotta remember, though Jesus uh, was not surprised, And though he was sovereign over specifics, he had a choice. And his choice was to go to the cross. Jesus was riding the donkey into Jerusalem because he knew that he was going to suffer and die. Jesus chose to be welcomed by a crowd on Sunday and to be killed by a crowd on Friday. Jesus chose that he was going to have disciples that would betray him. Jesus chose, God himself chose to be beat, to be falsely tried. God himself chose to be mocked, to be whipped with the cat of nine tails, to the limit of what the understood life could sustain. Jesus chose to have his rep flesh ripped apart. Jesus chose to have a crown of thorns crushed on his head. Jesus chose to follow the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that clearly states it was the Lord's will to crush him. Jesus chose to carry his cross. Jesus chose to let people nail his hands to the wood. Jesus chose to die a criminal's death. Jesus chose to suffocate. Jesus chose to allow himself to be pierced in the side. Jesus chose to die. The sovereign one over everything chose to enter into suffering so that unfaithful people that love themselves and love control and love convenience and love our comfort more than anything else could find grace and forgiveness. He lost his control so that I could be forgiven. He left his comfort so that I could have the comfort of his grace and his love. He inconvenienced himself. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that me, who's addicted to my convenience, 
and I fuel my self-love, can find forgiveness. You see that? What kind of king is this? It's the kind of king that invites everybody to his table. It's the kind of king that says, I want you to worship me, not based on your work or your performance, but to come feast on my grace. He's the kind of king that demonstrates exactly what a true hero is, laying down his life for those that he loves. He's the kind of king that makes it so enemies can become family, so that strangers could be welcomed, so that you and I, all of us who know him as Lord and Savior, could experience the sacrament, the physical seal and sign of his love for us. We know that the journey into Jerusalem that began with celebration of palms and uh, shouting and uh, hosannas ended in a betrayal. That Jesus, in the last supper, the last night that he would be with his disciples, before, uh, after giving thanks, before supper, he took the bread and he said, this is my body. It's given for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's not just a memory like, oh, Jesus, this is an actual participation. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the blood of my new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he will come again, this time not in humility, but in total victory. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the truth of the one who is sovereign over everything. He will come again. He will make all sad things become untrue. He will make all wrong things become right. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more darkness. The old order will be completely passed away. And the new will come for all who belong to him. And we feast on this reality. In this meal, yes, Jesus is locally present at the right hand of the Father, but he's spiritually present in this meal. And if you belong to him by faith and faith alone, then this meal is for you. If you're not a Christian here today, please refrain. We'd love to pray for you. But I'm going to pray for this. We're going to set it apart. And then we're going to invite you to come forward. We're going to have three stations, one, two, and three here. These two sections, y'all are here, all the back and the sides, y'all are over there. If you start getting overly lined up and there's room here, come on in here, okay? We're going to make a way, take your elements back to your seat, and we'll partake together, okay? So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. You are an amazing God. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we can participate in your work through uh, this Lord's Supper. Lord, we know that this is common and ordinary cup and bread, but we ask that you set it apart by your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would nourish us with your grace, that in our unrighteousness, Lord, we'd taste your righteousness, that in our need for forgiveness, we will taste your faithfulness and your forgiveness, that in our death, we'll taste your life, that in our poverty of our sin, we'll taste the richness of your grace. And Lord, we know that as we come to this table, many of us struggle 
we struggle with the reality of your sovereignty. We come with heavy hearts for lost loved ones. We come with heavy hearts with unanswered questions. Lord, we're broken by the news of this past week, whether that's tragic record numbers of migrants and refugees that are dying looking for care, or if it's lost innocent life in a school like Covenant Presbyterian Church. Lord, if it's the anxiety and anticipation of the annual anniversary of Uvalde, or if it's other brokenness in our life, Lord, we, we come with tremendous limitation. And we need to feast on your sovereign grace, knowing that you truly are taking what the enemy intends for evil and using it for good. That you are doing what you did on the cross, somehow bringing life from death, strength from struggle, beauty from ashes, light from darkness, and hope from despair. Lord, nourish our hearts through this meal to that end. And we together as your disciples pray to the way you taught us to pray, saying the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.